morning. Oh no, we can do better than that. Good morning. There you go. I want to welcome you this morning and thank you all for coming and joining us. Um, we're starting out a little bit different this morning because I want to be able to give to you an announcement. Most of you had received a, a couple of emails over the last couple of days calling for prayer. As a church and a church family, we have the opportunity to rally with one another um, when things go bad. And some things have gone bad. We have a family in our church, uh, Aaron and Michelle Lee, who had uh, a son that suffered a traumatic accident Thursday morning. We called for prayer. His name is Alex. And uh, he succumbed to his injuries on Friday evening where they determined that there wasn't anything else that they were able to do for him. And so... We want to let you know because we had called for a miracle. We had called for prayer and we had called for intercession and, and that's what we do. And one of the things that God can do is answer prayer. In fact, he always answers prayer. But he doesn't always answer it the way that we wish he would. And so the miracle and the gift that God has given is the miracle of eternal life. And Alex is with the Lord. And I know he's with the Lord. I have that full confidence. But in his absence and leaving his, his parents and his sister here then the next thing that we can do as a church family is pray for them and the extended family. And so we're going to do that now and uh, pray for our service this morning. You know, Scripture tells us not to mourn as those who have no hope, because we do have hope. Uh, we can mourn like the world because the world's hopeless and, and saying, well, there is no life. But that's not what God tells us. God has given us Full confidence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's our confidence. And with that, we can have great joy. Though we can have mourning for a short period of time, when the sun rises, and the sun did rise, then we can celebrate life. So let's pray now. God, we thank you that we can come in this place. That, God, we can stand with our brothers and sisters, and in their grief and their sorrow, knowing, God, that you bring joy in the morning. That we have that joy that, that is founded in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for Aaron and Michelle and Erica and the family and extended family, that you would be the God of comforts for them and a present help in the time of need. I thank you, God, that we have the confidence to know that, that Alex has confessed his faith in, in, as a young child and, and has been baptized and, and believes in you, and now he's in your presence. And Lord, we'll see him again. But till then, may we as the church continue to celebrate the resurrection, celebrate the joy, and know that you are the hands that keep us, that, Lord Jesus, you're the hands that guide us. And may we honor you, and may we worship you as if we were with Alex in front of the throne of grace. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to stand and let's worship our God. Through the door of joy, for we adore you, God of 
thousand hallelujahs they said can you imagine the thousands of hallelujahs that have been been sung in this space over time and how we need to uh, partner with that and lift our own hallelujahs and even in this building think of all the hallelujahs that have been raised in this building and so as we worship God 
Let's again give him our hallelujah this morning, knowing that the one we give him this morning, we need to add the one next week and the next time because even a thousand hallelujahs isn't enough to worship his name. Lifted to the Lord with a thousand hallelujahs, we magnify your name. You alone deserve the glory, the honor, and the praise. Lord Jesus, this song is forever yours. There isn't time enough to sing of all you've done. I have eternity to try. With a thousand hallelujahs, we magnify your name. You alone deserve the glory.
God as we give our tithes and our offerings this morning. So let me pray if you will wait on people. Father God, that song rings deep within our hearts that you and only you are worthy of our praise. And we worship you. We give you honor. We give you glory this, this morning with our being here, with our voices. And now, with our finances, our heart's desire is to do nothing but to please you. So we ask that you would be pleased as we give this morning out of a grateful heart. And as we continue to worship you, the lion and the lamb, in Jesus' name, amen.
to that day when you do come through the clouds take us home Father until then as we look into your word this morning we ask that you would continue to mold our hearts and our lives into the image of our Savior and Lord Jesus Amen Amen. If you would open up your Bibles to Matthew 24 we're going to begin in verse 36 as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew and taking a look at part two of Jesus' discussion in, in what's known as the Olivet Discourse. If I was to ask you the question, are you ready to see Jesus? You might give me that Sunday school answer of, yeah, I'm ready to see him. But the question is, does your life reflect a readiness to see Jesus? There is a thing that happens to us in, in, in Christendom where we get into a, a place of, of complacency. Where it's like, well, I know Jesus is coming back, but I got my life now. And I'm living my life. Many people, in fact, most people can become so preoccupied with living their life now that they lose sight of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Where we get up, you know, and we do the same thing every day. We get up, we get ready, we go to work. We get up, we get ready to go to work. We do all the different things. Day in, day out, day in, day out, right? The repetitive stuff. And then we have certain milestones and events that we look forward to. Uh, that our, our refreshment times, our vacations, our visits with family and such things. And, and that's all good and that's fine and we should. But in the same token, if we become so preoccupied with life and living and, and things here 
and we lose sight of the imminent return of Jesus, there's a tendency in us to drift. To drift from our, our main focus and, and our main priority in life. That we become indifferent concerning the things of God. And I know we all struggle with it. I struggle with it just as well as you. Where we can become indifferent to the Word. We can become indifferent to prayer. We can become indifferent to holiness. To the things that God has called us to. That was true in the days of Noah. Where people had become so indifferent, sin had become so rampant, that God said, well, I need to destroy the earth and start over again with the flood. And the days of Lot, where the people had become so indifferent to the things of God that God said to Sodom and Gomorrah, you're all going to be wiped out. And, and even Lot himself had to be pulled out from there. It was true in the days of Israel and the kings, when Israel, God's own people, were put into a land and, and given this land, and they become so indifferent because of daily living that they had forgotten about the things of God. And in the days of king, God said, look, at judgment's going to come. They become indifferent about keeping the Sabbath and all of these things. And so God said, look it, I'm going I'm to put you in time out. We're going to send the Assyrians and the Babylonians to come in, and you're going to go into captivity. It became true in the days of Jesus, when even Jesus, the Son of God, came. And the people, the religious leaders, had become so indifferent about the things of God that they didn't even recognize the Messiah, Jesus, standing right in front of them. Indifference is a result of complacency. And it comes from the, the construct of, of not looking towards the coming of the Lord Jesus. And the problem with indifference is we ignore the warnings that God gives to us. God gave warnings, as we'll, t as we'll talk about in a moment, to the people in the time of Noah. God gave warnings to the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. God gave warnings to the kings through the prophets. God gave warnings to the people of the land when Jesus was here. And they are all indifferent towards it. They miss the, the, those things. And then when judgment came, in their mind, it was sudden. But the reality is, it's not sudden. God is giving us warnings today. There are warnings all around us. And as Jesus is, is discussing with his disciples, they asked him a question. The question was, when is the temple going to be destroyed? Because Jesus said the stones are going to be yarded down. When, when is this going to happen? And when is your return? Well, there's going to be signs and seasons as he discusses. And people were not ready, and they won't be ready, and they're not prepared. And I guess the question that we have for you today, that we have to ask ourselves, and we should ask ourselves every morning, when you wake up, am I ready to see the Lord today? Because that's how we need to live, in a state of readiness, and push off complacency and apathy and indifference. As I said, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives and he's discussing these things with his disciples. And it's about 30 A.D. and in 70 A.D., about 40 years later, truly, this temple is going to be destroyed. 
But he also is speaking about his second coming. It's a fancy word called the Perusa. The second coming of Jesus when he would come back to that very same mountain and establish his kingdom. And he's trying to, to not just give the disciples of his time, but us as disciples, a view with the future of us being ready and when he comes. We don't know that day and hour. There's a lot of people today that want to pride themselves that they know when Jesus is coming back. And, and there's a lot of people today that spend a lot of time in what's called eschatology or the study of end times wanting to know. I want to I know that day. I want to know that day that Jesus is coming back. I want to know. Why do you want to know? Think about it. Why do you want to know the day that Jesus is going to come back? What difference in your life does it make knowing the day and the hour? What difference, what would knowing that day and hour do for you? How would knowing that day and hour change your life? How would knowing that day and hour change how you're living right now? Being a youth pastor, and I'm still a youth pastor, I guess, at heart, working with youth, and having been one, whenever the parents would leave, the children for a while, on vacation. They're finally old enough. We will leave them. We're going to go on our adult vacation. We're going to leave our semi-adult children in the house. You all know what's going on. When are you coming home, Mom and Dad? Why? Because there's shenanigans that are going to be underfoot. I want to know when you're coming home. Why? So I can behave poorly and get everything cleaned up and hope that you'll never know. You know, it's really good to trust your children. It's even better not to trust them. Just don't tell them. Either that or have really good spies. We're going to take a look at Jesus' words here in this second uh, session of the, the Olivet Discourse. I'd like to read through these passages. So if you would stand as we read through Matthew 24, beginning with verse 36 to 51. Now, mind you, this is a continuing conversation. He says, But of that day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son but the Father alone, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. Therefore, be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time at night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is faithful 
and a sensible slave, whom his master has put in charge of the household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is the slave whom the master finds doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that slave will come on the day when he does not expect him at an hour which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him the place with hypocrites in that place, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May God bless the reading of his word. Be seated. It's a hard way to end, weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, one of the things that we see in, in, in the context of this passage, that Jesus prophesies when the coming of the Son of Man comes, and we're speaking of the second coming, the physical second coming of Jesus, mind you, he is speaking to his disciples. He's talking about his physical return to the Mount of Olives. And, and primarily this message is for the Jews that are there. When he comes, no one is going to know. No one is going to know the day or the hour. Note, not even the angels, nor the Son of Man. And as I said, many people want to know, when is the second coming? Why would people want to know the day and the hour? When we look at the day and the hour, it's just a way or a phrase of saying, I want to know the specific time. Now, has God given us, through prophecy, a general Time? The answer is yes. When you study biblical prophecy, we have general signs and, and, and seasons to be able to know. But the day and the hour or that specific time, we don't know. A lot of people want to know the end of the world. When is the end of the world? Nostradamus tried to prophesy within the end of the world. Why do we want to know the end of the world? Well, maybe we're going to live life to its fullest until the end. You know, prior to becoming a Christ follower, I used to party a lot. And we had this concept with the guys and the people that I used to party with that we are just going to party our brains out and when we get to hell, we're going to party even that much more. What a fool. It is not like that. You think about this. And others, they'll look for the end or the end of the world and, and from the time of the divine judgment. The second coming of Jesus precedes the end of the world. When you take a look at chronology, there are a series of events that will take place, and we don't have time this morning to walk all the way through that timeline. But to give you a brief idea of what that timeline is, there was a time when God was working with the nation of Israel, and that timeline ended... In 70 A.D., then God turned his attention towards the Gentiles in what's called the church age or this age of grace. It's an undetermined amount of time where God is reaching out to the Gentiles for all those that will be saved will be saved. At a point in time, the church, as we'll talk about later, will be taken out. The tribulation period will appear for seven uh, real years, seven years. Halfway through that time, the Antichrist will be revealed. 
And the wrath of God will be poured out for three and a half years. At the end of that period of time, Jesus will return. Establish His kingdom. That's the parousia. That is the second coming of Jesus to be able to establish a kingdom for a thousand years. For a thousand years, Jesus will have His kingdom on earth. Satan will be bound. Jesus will rule. And at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be loosed for a short period of time to be able to give temptation to those that were born during that thousand year period. At which time, the great white throne judgment of God, the final judgment will take place. When there's a clear separation between those that have placed their faith in Jesus and those that have not. Satan will be cast out into the lake of fire. Heaven and earth will be destroyed and a new heaven and earth will be established. Where there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sin. And we will live all eternity and God will restore that perfect relationship with mankind. There you have it. That's the road map. But what are we looking for? We are looking for two things. The calling of the church and the return of Jesus. But if we know a set time, will that change the way that you live? And you say, no, not me. Well, the answer is yes. We're doing it now. Question, are you living a holy life as you should? Are you living with the expectation as you should that Jesus could call you at any time? Are you ready? Or are you saying, well, you know, the Lord delays His coming. That's the tension in this passage. The contrast between those that are living in a manner that's ready to see Jesus and those that are saying, nah, i got plenty of time to be able to do this. To be able to live in a manner that you want to be able to live in disobedience and then say, well, at the last minute, I'm going to ask for forgiveness. It's kind of like somebody hoping for a deathbed confession. Right? I'm going to live, I'm going to live, I'm going to live like hell. And then right before I die, I'm going to say the sinner's prayer so I can get in. Is that a wise way to live? No, absolutely not. So what does Jesus mean in these terms? It's the specific time. It's the chosen time. Now we look at this text and we've got to wrestle with something that's in it. Because it says, no one knows the time, not the angels, which are here, nor the Son of Man that's here. And you're saying, well, wait a minute, isn't Jesus God? And doesn't God know everything? How is it that Jesus doesn't know the time of His return? He didn't get the memo? You've got to understand that Jesus in His incarnation, in other words, when He descended from heaven and added to Himself humanity, there were certain attributes that He self-limited. That intentionally He self-limited in His humanity, in His role as the Son of God. The number two. The Father is the orchestrator of the timeline. The Son is the fulfiller of the actions of the Father. Jesus 
placed himself in a second position. It's called hupotasso in Greek. It means to place yourself under the authority of. Jesus, equal as God, willingly places himself under the authority of the Father in order to accomplish the purposes and the tasks of the Father. How do we know that? We know that based on John 17, where Jesus says in his prayer, Father, all these things I have done that you've told me to do. We know that at the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's any other way to pass, for this cup to pass, let it be nevertheless, not my will, but what? Your will be done. And at the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So within that, we know that Jesus, in his humanity, created a condition of self-limiting in some of the things. We know that while Jesus, in his humanity, did not practice omnipresence. He wasn't everywhere at all place, right? He limited himself to one place at one time in his, in his human condition. And in this condition, he is self-limiting on the timeline for the purpose of hupotasso, or to create that place where, where he would act in the subordinate position to the Father. Do you, you follow? So the Father is orchestrating this. So Jesus is no less God. And, and so what we see is an example of what is called Christology, or the, or the study of the Christ in that position within this. And when that day, what is the day? It's the day of judgment, specifically. Please do not confuse this with the rapture of the church. It is a different time. It is specifically the day of judgment. It's spoken out throughout Scripture. There's about 14 different passages that specifically talk about the day of the Lord. One, for example, is Joel chapter 1, verse 15, where Joel would say, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. The day of the Lord is always the day of judgment within that. And it's that day of the destruction is coming. And it's that day that the people are unprepared for. The unbeliever, the naysayer, will always be unprepared for judgment. Why? Because they don't believe that they're ever going to be held accountable for their sin. Right? I don't recognize God, I don't recognize sin, and I'm never going to be held accountable. Do we live in a world today of lawlessness where they feel like they'll never be held accountable for wrongdoing? Is it growing greater? Yes. Why? Because it is the condition of the world. As we grow closer to the day of the Lord, so does the indifference for the behavior against God and the rebellion against mankind. I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't hear about another shooting or a murder in Portland. Or another rebellion or another thing that is going on against all kinds of mankind. And verses 37 to 41, we're told that that day of the Lord is going to catch people unprepared. Historically, people that have re rejected God have been caught unprepared. Notice how he says, in the days of Noah. What was going on in the days of Noah? God went to Noah, and you can take a look at it in Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 7, the whole account that's there. But God looked down upon man and said, man, they are messed up. i got to start over again. They have become so wicked. In fact, there's only eight 
that I, 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 I'll be able to save out of this. Noah, go build an ark. Can you imagine that conversation? Build a what? A boat. What's a boat? It floats on water, on a flood. Uh, there's no water around here. And you've got to make it big, really big. Yeah, when's the crew coming? Oh, no, you are the crew. For a hundred years, Noah would build and he would preach and people would look at him and they would mock him and he said, there's a flood coming, there's a flood coming, there's a flood coming. You are a crazy old man. There's a flood coming. God's going to destroy the earth. You need to repent. You're crazy. Never going to happen. And so what did people do? They went upon their normal life. Eating and drinking and partying and doing all the things, going, you're just crazy. Was Noah that crazy when the flood came suddenly? Did Noah know the day? Nope. But at that day, God said to Noah, get in the ark. All the animals are there. And the text tells us that God closed the door of the ark. And the flood waters from above and the flood waters from below burst forth and flooded the whole earth. And then, the text tells us, then they understood. Then they understood. They understood, but it was, what? Too late. Noah and his family were prepared. Why? Because they believed the Word of God. And imagine, when the ark was finally finished and they're looking and they're going, okay, is it today? No, it's not today. Is it today? No, is it not today? And all of these things until it was that day. And, he's, and we're told in, it, that in that time, everyone was carrying on. Verse 39, until they understood and the flood was coming. And then in Jesus' day, verses 40 and 41, he says, then there will be two in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women grinding, one taken, one left. In other words, in that day, then, the day of judgment that is there. The coming of the, man, the Son of Man for judgment is given to us. Where people will be carrying on in their normal daily jobs. A couple of people working in the field, one taken and one left. Two women grinding. And it was a two-person job where they would get on a grinding wheel and they would grind the flour. It was a normal work day. One taken and one left. And you say, well, Carrie, does that talk about the rapture? No. This is not a passage about the rapture. One was taken off to judgment. One was left within that place. The, the, it's interesting because we, we have to understand what the words that are there. The word used for taken is paralabamo. It, it, it means to take, but take with. So take with this condition. The context, and you have to read it in context. The context is judgment. Whenever you study the Bible, context is king. Do not take Scripture out of context and make it dance on all four. So within this, this is not a, a, a condition of judgment or a rapture, but it's the condition of judgment that is taking. The rapture is the taking the church out into blessing. The judgment is taking someone out into judgment or to separate unto that. 
And you say, well, Carrie, where in the Bible does the word rapture appear? It doesn't. It doesn't appear. What does appear, and, and where we get the word rapture, it's Latin. And in the Latin translation of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 18, I want to read to you that passage. It says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about these who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that if there is first conditional, it says if we believe and we do, that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Those that have died prior to this time are coming with Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, in other words, the living church, and remain until the Lord's, the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will remain, will be, that word, caught up, snatched up. Different than paralabonmo. It is a completely different word. With them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be. When the Lord returns, He does for the church, He does not come back to the earth. He comes back in the air, and those that are alive are snatched up within that. The word is arpazo. Arpazo means to be violently caught up. In other words, a sudden taken away within that. A sudden snatching away. This rapture pertains only to the church and those that are alive in the Lord. That is that time frame within that. This is prior to the second coming. This is prior to the tribulation period. Prior to the day of the Lord. We know that because in context, as the letter was written to the church of Thessalonica, they were worried that they missed the rapture. And in chronology, it goes from the rapture of the church in, verse, in chapter 4 to the day of the Lord, chapter 5. And then describing what that day of the Lord is. And we know that the day of the Lord is in judgment. So we know the church is raptured out. Why? 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the tribulation period? It is the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb. We also know based on Revelation chapter 3, 10, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth, the tribulation period. Why? Because you now are keeping the Word of God. In the Lord, keeping the Word of God. Guess what? You don't have to go through the hour of testing. You don't have to go through the wrath. Why? Because God has saved you from that. And that condition. And you say, well, Carrie, why does that have to happen? It has to happen that way because there is a restraining force in God's timeline. It's called the Holy Spirit. He who dwells in you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6-10 to says this, And you know... 
what restrains him. Pay attention to pronouns. This is where pronouns are important. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, Revelation 19, will bring into the end of the appearance of his coming, and that is the one who is coming accord to the activity of Satan. That would be the Antichrist. And all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception and wickedness, for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, so as to be saved. I don't think it gets any clearer than that. You say, well, who are the pronouns? The pronoun he that restrains is the Holy Spirit. And where does the Holy Spirit dwell? In the believer. Therefore, the church, as he says earlier in Thessalonians, has to be taken out. So that he, the lawless one, who is the Antichrist, then will be revealed. I believe the text is clear that, that the church will not see the Antichrist, even though the spirit of lawlessness is there. Now, there's a lot of people that will disagree and get into semantics and all of these things. I don't think God wants us to disagree about these things. And I don't think God wants us to worry about the day and the hour. What does God want us to worry about? Are you ready? Are you ready? Don't get so deep in eschatology and theology that you lose sight of the most important thing. Are you ready to see Jesus? Are the ones whom you love ready to see Jesus? Let God take care of the calendar. Let God take care of the timing. Because if you're ready to see Him today, and you're ready to see Him tomorrow, and you're ready to see Him next year, does it really matter when He comes? No. You have one job. One job. That's all you got to do. Be ready. That's all you got to do. Be ready. The one job. And that's why he says in verse 42, be ready. The, the Jews and the Gentiles that go through the tribulation will stand before Christ in the second coming. Those that make it through... Because the, the, the 70th week of Daniel, that week of tribulation, is for the Jews. But the Gentiles will also go through. And at that time, when Jesus establishes kingdom, he will call all of them into judgment. The church itself will have already been judged and rewarded at the Bema Seat judgment in heaven. It already takes place. And I know I'm throwing a lot at you. But notice what the word then says. Then there is this judgment that takes place. And so he says in verse 42, as he concludes this first section, Therefore, based on the imminent return and judgment of Jesus, therefore be on alert. Why? You don't know the day in which the Lord comes. Jesus says, don't get lost in the weeds. Just be ready. Pretty simple. Be ready. Because that sudden return of Jesus is going to surprise many. That is there. He goes on and talking about through illustration and allegory. 
the preparedness that's necessary. In verses 43 to 44, he says this, Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what time the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would not have known that was there. If, if you knew that someone was going to break into your house, if you knew that, that midnight tonight a thief was going to come and break into your house, what would you do? <laughs> Welcome to Columbia County. <laughs> but you don't. You don't. But the context of the parable that he gives, he says, there is. It's not, an, it's not a, a doubt. If you knew for sure, but you don't, but the thief will come, guaranteed, what would you do? You would do everything necessary to be prepared. Lock the doors, lock and load. <laughs> Get your ring doorbell up. I don't know, whatever you do. You'd be ready. You would be ready. Why? Because you want to catch them. Because you believe that this action is going to take place. It, it, it really isn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And so based on that, your actions reflect your belief. As James would say, faith without works is dead. If you say you believe in God, then live like you believe in God. If you say that you believe that Jesus is coming again, then live that way. If you believe that you're going to see him again, then live that way in anticipation. The homeowner would stand watch and guard. Why? Because he believes that it's an event about to happen. And Jesus says, in that same way, be ready for the coming of the Son of Man when he returns in verse 44. Because like a thief. Now, mind you, Jesus is not saying that he's a thief. Please don't make that connection. He's not a thief. But it's the same intensity of the homeowner. The homeowner is the highlight of the parable. So be ready, because he's going to come when you don't expect him. The last parable that he talks about in verses 45 to 51 is the parable of the two stewards. As he says that there's a faithful steward and an unfaithful steward, he says, Who then is the faithful and the sensible slave, whom the master puts in charge of his household and gives to them their food? And so this is not some ordinary steward. This is not some ordinary servant. This is the chief servant. And the master says to the chief servant, You're in charge, and you're also in charge of all the other servants, and it's your job to make sure that all the other servants are taken care of. And when I come back, then... We'll take care of it. Well, who owns all the servants? The master. Who has all the possessions and provisions? The master. The servant is just the one that works on behalf of the master. So the master leaves and gives the servant the responsibility, and the faithful servant works as if the master will return at any time. Now, we've studied the parables of the talents and the parables of the minas, where the master would go away, the parable of the, the vineyard, where the, the, the guy goes away and he comes back. We see that multiple times in text, right? And he always leaves them with responsibility and says, I've given you the responsibility, now you need to be responsible. And when I come back, then we'll, we'll settle up. And the settle up always is the same. If you were faithful with a little, you always get more. It's the reward. 
And it always comes with a blessing. Blessed are you for being faithful. And so the illustration that Jesus gives for the faithful servant is one that works and, and takes care of others and takes care of the master's things. He serves the master without a self-centeredness. With, with, without the desire of making it about himself or selfish living. The servant of God is not so preoccupied with his personal life that he's not faithful with the things that the master has given to him. So his priority is the master first and his responsibilities first. That's the faithful servant. And the reward for that faithfulness, as I said, is blessing, where he says, blessed are you. Now you're in charge of everything. In Matthew 25, 21, we read, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of the master. Do you know, as, as a Christ follower... When we come back with Christ after the marriage supper of the Lamb and Jesus has established His thousand-year reign that you're going to rule and reign with Him and He's going to give you some responsibilities. Some places that you're going to be able to oversee and manage on His behalf. And so those that are faithful are going to be faithful, are going to be responsible for much and those that are faithful with the little are going to be little and those that blew it you're not even going to make it. You're not even there. Why? Because your behavior now reveals your heart. There's a lot of people that name the name of Christ. There's a lot of people that declare themselves as being Christian. Or they go to church. Or they, 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 they think that they're saved. But your behavior really reveals what you believe inside. Because notice the contrast. The unfaithful servant. The unfaithful servant, he says, is this. As we take a look at verse 48. But to the evil slave, says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, begins to beat his fellow slaves, eat and drink with drunkards, and the master of that slave will come on that day when he does not expect him, at an hour which he does not know, and he'll cut him into pieces, assign him in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, this is the unfaithful servant that is not saved. It's the account that God comes in and says, look, you played the game, but your heart was never with me. How do I know? Your behavior reveals it. You were so preoccupied with self that you treated others poorly. Do you realize your behavior towards other people is a, is a barometer of your faith in Christ? How you treat other people truly is a barometer of, of, of how you believe the love of Christ has worked in you and that salvation and that grace. The hypocrisy that has taken place. Yes, I am a servant of the master, but the religious hypocrisy of treating people poorly. Jesus was speaking against the religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees and the scribes who were devouring people and destroying people. 
That in contrast to the faithful servant who was rewarded with much, the wicked servant is cut into pieces. You say, that's pretty harsh. Yes, it is. You can read about some of that harshness in Judges chapter 20, verse 6, or 1 Samuel eleven seven, because when judgment was taking place, they would cut people in pieces and send them out. It was, it was horrible. It was a strict judgment. A place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, literally being cast away from the presence of God. We've got to realize, God's not messing around. This is not some kind of happy Jesus religious club that we belong to. We serve a living God who loves us and has given everything for our redemption to bring us into His heaven and eternal life. And He has given us warning after warning after warning that if you do not repent and turn away from that behavior and accept that free gift, your choice of living without God will become a permanent choice. And God will give you over to it. And you say, well, I don't know. Because I want to be able to live now. I want to be able to live in this place. And enjoy these things. I can tell you this, there is nothing that compares to heaven. That's on this earth. Nothing, nothing, nothing compares. Not that I've been there. But what I know from Scripture... From what Paul has said when he went to heaven and came back and said, there are things that I cannot even explain. When you take a look at John's writings in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, and at the end, the writings of Revelation 21, the promise of God that those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior will never see death. Oh, this body may die, but you will never see that kind of death. That's the reality. Are you ready to see Jesus? If not, get ready. Because you will see Him. And you'll hear one of two phrases. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in. Or, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. One of those two places. And there's only two people that are going to know that condition. You and Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you have given us warning after warning after warning. That you are reaching out from eternity to save the least, the lost, the marginalized, those that are apart from you. That you have done all the work, Lord Jesus, for that salvation. There isn't anything that we have to do other than trust you. Confess that that condition of sin and say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me. Be the Lord of my life. And Lord Jesus, when you do that, from that point on, we can live under your leadership. Looking forward to that return. Or that calling. That presence. God, may our hearts long to see your face. And we know that the only way to do that is through your Son, Jesus. And perhaps this morning, you're realizing, I'm scared. 
I don't think, I don't think that I'm forgiven. I don't think I've ever fully surrendered my life, confessed my sin. If that's you during this last song, talk to God about it. And if you don't know what to say, simply say, God, please forgive me. Please forgive me of my sin. Please give me a new life through Jesus. I trust in you, Lord Jesus, as my Savior. I want to go to heaven. I want to receive that gift. You pray that prayer from the heart of your hearts and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You'll be saved. Let's think on these things as we close with this last song.
as God's moving on your heart, if you're at that place where you want to see Jesus, perhaps you want to see Him this morning. You want to see Him as your Lord and your Savior, and you don't know how to get there. You don't know how to see Him. Come talk to me after this service. I'd like to be able to pray with you and encourage you so that and introduce you to Jesus as Savior and Lord. So with all that, let's go ahead and close this time in prayer. God, we thank You that You have given to us hope and future, the assurance of salvation, that is guaranteed by the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank You that all those that are in Your hand, Lord Jesus, You lose none. And that You carry us on to eternity. Lord, may we fall into Your hands this morning. May, may we just fall, knowing that You're not going to drop us, that You catch us. You catch us, You keep us, and You carry us all the way into the throne room of grace. We thank you for this time, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen. and praise Jesus. Have a blessed day. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.